Hello and welcome to episode number 179 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we hear from Elise Masikard, political sociologist and senior researcher at the Center for International Studies at Sciences Po and the author of Street Level Governing, Negotiating the State in Urban Turkey, published by Stanford University Press. The book takes a deep dive into the world of the muhtar, the lowest level of the administrative rung in Turkey, administrators elected by locals in every rural and urban neighborhood across the country. While officially non-partisan and not affiliated with political parties, muhtars have always carried a certain symbolic weight, and in recent years, their ambiguous position somewhere between the state and the public has come under pressure, as President Erdogan has sought to bind them ever more closely to the centre in Ankara and use them to increase the government's authority over every aspect of Turkish society. Masikard's book examines that process but also digs deeper into the everyday work of muhtars, looking firsthand at how they operate and how they chart a course between locals and the higher authorities. Before we get started, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to my annoying voice, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Elise Masikard. I started by asking her to broadly describe for us who muhtars are, what they do, and what exactly their administrative duty is. It is hard to say in a few words what muhtars do and what they are because they don't, you know, fit into the boxes. And that's what I find interesting about them. Muhtars are officials, local level officials at the lowest level in Turkey. On the one hand, they are administrators, they are linked to the state. But on the other hand, they are also elected and linked to the population. So they are in between, you know, like the state on the one hand and the local societies on the other hand, and they are a kind of hybrid 
Basically, they work as a kind of bridge between the state and officialdom and the people. And this has many dimensions. They work in very different sectors, like they would help in helping people getting social assistance or with the registering of the population, with the ID documents, official documents, and with everything that has to do with the state and official institutions. So they don't have a very clear you know, definition of what their tasks are because they act as this kind of bridge in every dimension of the relation between people and state. And they operate at the neighborhood level in urban areas and at the village level in non-urban areas, basically. And these can be populations of a few dozen or a few hundred or a few thousand. So it's pretty flexible. There's no rule on that front. So the office of Muhtars has basically existed, as you describe it in the book, since the 1830s, actually. And they obviously uh, originated in Istanbul, uh, the Ottoman capital at the time. And you describe it as perhaps the oldest functioning public institution in Turkey. Could you just talk about that historical origin, basically, of the Muhtar's office? You know, how and why did Muhtar's first emerge? Basically, what need did they serve back then? Yes, sure. I was very interested by the fact that this institution is, as you said, the oldest working institution in Turkey. It it has Ottoman roots and it's very astonishing because of the many historical ruptures that the Ottoman Empire and then Turkey experienced and so many institutional ruptures. So the Muhtar institution actually was created in the 1830s. It was this period of reforms of the administration and administrative apparatus of the empire. And the empire was confronted with many problems regarding governing the people, especially the migration, internal migration of people. And it was also a period where state institutions wanted to know more about their people and govern them more. And so it is in this broader tendency of of reforming the administration So it was a kind of a new way of governing the people and creating some relationship between state and and people on the local level. What is interesting to me is that this creation of that Muhtar institution has been broadly interpreted in a broader movement of modernization and bureaucratization. But what always struck me is that I don't think that it is really relevant to consider this creation of that institution in that framework, in that bureaucratization and modernization framework, which is the main framework with which we look at Tanzimat reforms and so on. The reason why I'm not convinced it is the most relevant conceptualization is because, of course, Muhtars have been from the beginning connected to the state apparatus. And of course, most of their functions have been linked to the central authorities, but they have always been very much embedded in society. So, of course, you know, it depends on what dimension of their activity you're looking at, because if you look at them as state officials, it is relevant in terms of, you know, they have to ensure order and safety in the neighborhood. They have to denounce suspects or wanted persons to security forces. 
They have to enforce laws and regulations, and they have been responsible for keeping civil records, etc. So, so this fits in, you know, in a way in that broader framework of bureaucratization. But what doesn't fit is that they are not really only, or let's say, classical administrators. Because first, for a long time, they have not been paid. They didn't have a salary. It was not possible to make a living out of this activity. So as a consequence, Muhtars, they have other activities, professional activities. And more importantly, they are elected by the inhabitants. So that makes them quite different from any other kind of officials in the Ottoman Empire and in Turkey. So you point out that they are both elected by locals, the local population in these neighborhoods, but they're also purely administrative and non-ideological. So actually, Muhtars are not politically affiliated to any party. And uh, actually, they've been barred from receiving party support since 1980. So, for example, whenever you see posters for Muhtar candidates in neighborhoods, you know, those campaign posters are always pretty general and they don't really offer many hints about ideology and they should look really closely. So Muhtars do occupy this ambiguous position. Could you just talk about that? You know, how Muhtars are selected and elected? How do Muhtars appeal to the public? And uh, obviously it's officially banned, but are there any links to parties during this election process? Yeah, that's a very important question. I, I kept wondering all the time who becomes a Muhtar and why. First, we should really keep in mind that if you look at elections in Turkey, we always think about party elections. But then if you observe the local elections, because Muhtars are elected in the same, at the same time, the same day with other local elected people. If you go there and, and observe, you, you see that Muhtar election is a very important election. For example, most instances of electoral violence and deaths are actually linked to Muhtar elections and not party elections. So that gives us a, a hint that this is not an unimportant. So why is, why is it so important and, and which kind of people become Muhtars? Actually, the question of, of the political party is a, a quite complicated one. First, Muhtars actually were linked to political party and to the party political scene until 1980. During the early Republican period, they were linked to the single party. And after that, with a multi-party period, there was a party competition with Muhtars and for Muhtars. So they were very much linked to uh, that party life. And that was prohibited by the coup in 1980 in order to depoliticize society. So now Muhtars are not supposed to be linked to parties, but it doesn't mean that they don't have any link to parties. But if they have, it's not very legal and it's not very legitimate. So they would not, you know, like really show it. Actually, that actually brings us to the question of who can get elected without a party on a local level? Well, they are not anybody. Not anybody can become a Muhtar. The book is only, my research is only about Muhtars in, in urban neighborhoods and especially Istanbul. And there you see that Muhtars are from actually mostly from well-known families. It's often a family issue. Some are transmitted in the families. And those families are most of the time families with a history in the neighborhood. They are settled families, you know, with small notables, 
grocers and so on. Not very rich people either, but not the normal citizen. So that's one dimension. Another dimension is that, as I said, they are not only party people. They have to build a social coalition to be elected. So they have to be able to gather support in the neighborhood. And as you say, some neighborhoods are quite big in terms of population. Some have 80,000 inhabitants and others are much smaller, but they have to build local coalitions and those coalitions are not really party political, but they would build the coalitions on representing people from several provinces, from it, for example, especially in the very populous neighborhoods where you have many people coming from the provinces. So they would try to represent the most important groups in the neighborhood and in order to be able to do that, most uh, Mukhtars are, you know, from occupations or have occupations that bring them in contact with people. So mostly they are known even before becoming Mukhtars in their neighborhood, maybe because they have been active in some association or they are a grocer or they have a big family and so on. So it's a kind of very localized political life. And when I say here political life, I don't mean only party political. It's a kind of very localized support and grouping and uh, coalitions. And it's uh, partly independent, partly autonomous from party political lines, but only partly because in some instances, the party political cleavages get more important for elections and in other instances, less important. But what I want to stress here is that uh, Actually, the position of Muhtar is very much, there is very high competition to, to become a Muhtar. It's some, something that people want to, want to be. It's uh, very desirable. So the competition has actually increased in the last decades. It has become more and more interesting for potential candidates to become a Muhtar. So you have very big fights on that in some places, much more than for municipal councillors, for example. Yeah, and I suppose the dynamics in each neighbourhood change. You're talking there about these Muhtar candidates needing networks to basically mobilise in order to get elected. And in order to do that, the local people are going to know who they are and basically who they're connected to and whether they are, you know, one of us or one of them. So I suppose in that kind of indirect way, that's how people very often make decisions, really. It's basically how big your network is and, and is your network connected to the right people. But they don't actually uh, enjoy very big budgets and they don't have a state budget to basically run their office. They just get a very small amount of money, almost token money to serve in this position. So could you talk about that, you know, how they fund themselves and why, if the money isn't great, why do people still want to do this pretty, the lowest administrative job in the country, essentially? Yeah, I have been wondering all the time about why people want to become Mukhtars. And actually, they don't have any budget, official budget. They don't have any means, so to say. They get some uh, allowance. It has increased in the last years quite a lot. So now it's, I haven't checked with inflation, but about more or less the minimal wage. But before, before the last years, it was much less than the minimal wage. And they have, they had also, because they don't have a budget, they have 
have actually to take care for the premises, for the computer, whatever they need to do their Mukhtar jobs. It takes money. So it's, it's not officially, it's not a job where you make money. There is another revenue, which is they deliver some certificates and these certificates are, you have to pay for them. And that money is for the Mukhtar. But it's, well, it's not much money. And, and especially now the certificates have become less and less in the last decade because now some of the certificates can be made through the internet or in other offices. So less and less people go and get those certificates from the Mukhtar. So that money has decreased in the last year. So actually you wonder why it's not, you know, it's not a position to become a rich. Uh, it depends actually, because what Mukhtars get, they get into a very central position. Mukhtarik is a very central position in the local neighborhood, but also in connection with state apparatus, with municipality, with the parties also. And so they get to be somebody in the neighborhood and not only in the neighborhoods. For example, well, they would, you know, have a very good access to some kind of information. And from that information, of course, you can do many things, including sometimes money from information about real estates or changes in, in the status of the lands and so on, of constrictions. And this is a very big resource. This is a very big resource where you can make money in some instances, but where you basically can become a central person. So in the book, I qualify Mukhtars as notables because they are the central people that everybody knows and who, you know, are key persons for any kind of processes. And that is important, I think. And then I also actually looked at what Mukhtars does. Is it a kind of position that helps you getting in an ever better position? And I couldn't see something like that. Especially, I looked at if, if Mukhtars become municipal councillors or switch into party life as politicians and so on. And that's not very often. That's actually, since they have not any more official links with parties, this kind of trajectories is quite seldom actually so it's it's not what you gain from from Mukhtar but basically you get in a very important position and it's also interesting to see that most Mukhtars remain Mukhtars very long much longer than other political or elected positions let's say we don't have any statistics we don't have there is no aggregated data on Mukhtars or Mukhtar elections and so on so it's very hard to have some kind of, of overview but basically you see that the renewal rate of Mukhtars is quite low and that basically Mukhtars want to remain Mukhtars. <laughs> so probably that makes them satisfied despite the fact that it's a very, very big workload. It's not a vacation. Sometimes some people seem to think that it's a kind of very unimportant position that could be basically suppressed because now we, there is kind of other forms of administration and bureaucracy and processes, etc. But I was myself very much struck observing Mukhtars and what they do on the everyday level. They really have quite a big workload and they are constantly asked for by by residents and constantly you know people come to them and ask them lots of things and so it's a very it's a very very big load it's not like a normal kind of normal job where you you go out of your office and that's over it's not only an official position it's also a social position 
Could you just talk about the research process for the book? Because it's not just a historical study. It's actually you were you were there on the ground observing, basically shadowing the work of various muhtars in various locations, mainly in Istanbul, but elsewhere as well. So could you just talk about that? You know, where did you study? You know, how did you choose the muhtars? How did you ingratiate yourself into their world, essentially? And I wonder also how much suspicion did you arouse as this outsider poking around this pretty obscure administrative aspect of contemporary Turkish life? Did anybody question you and, and what your motives were? Or just talk about the whole research process, basically. Yeah, thank you. It's the challenge of that research is that it was a research in political sociology. I mean, it, the historical dimension, I mean, I'm not an historian. It's very superficial, I have to say. What I wanted to do basically is to understand how this institution works and what Muhtars do, because I found their hybrid position in the middle in between state and society was so fascinating in order to understand, you know, the everyday state society relations, not in a very contested setting, but on a very normal everyday level. I wanted to look at that. So my challenge was that there are almost no written sources on Muhtars because, as I said, there is no statistics, there is no electoral statistics, there is nothing. And most of the Muhtars' work, of course, they have to do paperwork with certificates and so on, but they don't keep any kind of track. There is no archive. So basically, they operate in an oral world. They operate orally mostly. So the challenge was that I had really to speak with them and to look at them. Of course, I, I did some interviews with Mustars, but they are public persons. So it's very, they are very easy to find and easy to access on the, on the first stage, because of course they would tell about their life and what they do and so on. But most of the time, it would be kind of a showroom, you know? They they would give a very much idealized you know, view of what they do and what they are. So my challenge was to try to go beyond that and really try to look at what they really do ordinarily. And so to do that, I had to observe them on an everyday, normal basis. And that was challenging because they were very much welcoming me when I just wanted to speak with them and they would tell about their work and so on without any problems. But then they didn't want to, me to observe what they did or not some of the dimensions or some of the activities they did. So they really tried at some points to get rid of me. So what I did actually in order to be able to have a real observation is that I actually wanted to have a range of, of mutars. I didn't want to, to look at only one or two because I uh, started from the assumption that there is quite a variety of, of situations and I wanted to have a kind of overview. So I wanted to do some in-depth research with a few Muhtars and I tried to have a sample with several situations with, for example, very well-off neighborhoods, very poor neighborhoods, Gejekondu neighborhoods and so on, peripheral and central neighborhoods, uh, new and old neighborhoods and residential neighborhoods, others with 
much more businesses and so on. So I, I wanted to have a range of, of various situations, but then uh, I didn't have the luxury, you know, to really choose where I would work because my challenge was to get accepted by the Muhtars. I was living in Istanbul for a few years. So around me, I asked around with my colleagues and students and everybody and neighbors and grocers and so on. And I, I tried to get introduced to very different Muhtars. And that took me quite a time. So basically, I followed them six Muhtars in, in very different neighborhoods over two years. And I went to them. I began, you know, interviewing them and then spending time in their offices and with them and looking at what they were doing and also speaking with the people that were coming to them. And here I understood much more than with the interviews because what is very interesting is that much of their activity is not really official activity. I mean, there is what they are supposed to do in the regulations and in the and there is what they really do and it is quite different so if you don't look you don't see what the range of what they really do and so that's where I understood much more with observation much more than with interviews and of course they sometimes they were not they had some distrust and were kind of wondering because at the beginning they were very happy about some French young women getting interested in Murtars and what they were doing and they found that very strange and very good but then when and I began really, you know, being there often and sometimes asking embarrassing questions or seeing embarrassing situations, which happened a lot. They were much more distrustful. But because I had, you know, been introduced and because I came over and over again slowly, I, I didn't really have problems. But sometimes I felt that there were something that they did, didn't wanted me to see, especially because I did this research during and just after Gizeh protests. And so uh, the local issues became very much more politicized. So the atmosphere became uh, much more tense. And I felt this a lot before Gizeh and after Gizeh. And that was very interesting also for me to understand how this changed, I mean, the role of Muhtars. But if I had begun that research after Gizeh, it, had, it would have been much more difficult to get accepted. But I'm very thankful to the Muhtars who accepted my presence. And I must confess that I, I love doing this field research. I really loved being there in the Muhtar offices and looking at what was happening there because it looks very normal, very everyday. But every day I was astonished about the situations and what I was observing. It's really probably the research I did with, with the most pleasure, I, I must confess. Now, you say in the book, quote, as far as possible, Muhtars position themselves as mediators between the state and their constituents. They are attentive to requests from neighbourhood residents, but without being enthralled to them. At the same time, they are careful to maintain an image of serving residents and present themselves as their spokesperson. This image they produce of championing their constituents is intended to reinforce their legitimacy and popularity, but it does not mean that Muhtars systematically side with their constituents. And you talk in the book about how you started the research with this hypothesis, basically questioning whether Murtars are state agents wielding institutional power or representatives for neighborhood residents and their interests. 
But you talk in the book about how you later realised this situation was a bit more complicated than that. And, you know, Muhtars are basically, in some certain respects, part of the state, but in others, embedded in society. So they basically complicate this classic dichotomy that we have of state versus society. And obviously that is a rigid opposition, according to much Turkish scholarship. Could you just talk about how your research questions and complicates that rigid dichotomy? Yeah, yeah, that's actually the core of the book that you just asked about. <laughs> that's the basic reason why I was interested in, in Mortars, because they are this official figure who is most in touch with society. And also because this dichotomy between state and society is so embedded in scholarship about Turkey. And actually, I was not very convinced about that. So that's the reason why I looked at, at Muhtar's. And, and at the beginning, I had this either or. Is it about enforcing state regulations on society or defending society against the state? I was in this kind of alternative. And then I realized that it's not so simple. First, because Muhtar's are just in between and they have to keep both together because they depend actually on their constituents for re-election, but also because they are every day confronted to the requests of the constituents. So they have to respond to the constituents and they are also their neighbors and their relatives and so on. So they are very much dependent on their constituents. But on the other side, they also are dependent on the state, but differently. It's an institution that is not very much controlled, actually. Very interestingly, possibly because they don't have money. There is not much control on their activity from the official sites. It has increased, actually. The control has increased recently, but for decades, they have been quite autonomous from hierarchical official controls. So it's interesting to see how these officials are operating very flexible ways. And that's why I wanted in my sample some very oppositional places and also very well-off rich places. And you see that the way Mutar's act is so much related to the setting, to the social, the political, the economical setting where they operate. So it's very hard to see it as a standard thing. It's very, very flexible. And that's the first point that we don't really expect from Turkey. We would not really expect that, you know, because we see Turkey as a kind of strong state, very standardizing and so on. And, and that's not what I could see on, on the Muhtar level. I think there is a specificity. And also where I went beyond this, do you work for the state or do you work for the people, is I, I saw how much of their work is about ensuring a better access of the state to the people and a better access of the people to the state or to the official institutions. And so, in a way, they do really connect social demands and state institutions. And this works both ways, and that's very important to me. And in some instances, I also even observed that Muhtar's, when it comes to defending some interests of the inhabitants, inhabitants of their residents in terms of, you know, official services, public services. Muhtar's, in some instances, even, you know, would struggle against official decisions. And I saw, in, in some instances, Muhtar's mobilizing the residents in order to have some decisions 
change official decisions about, you know, the schools, the roads, the bus routes, and so on. So I saw that there is a channel here that doesn't work in every every time, but that can be used to defend the interests of the people, of some people. Also, it works the other way around that they would also help state officials to better know and better identify society and problems in society. So it is a very ambiguous situation. But what I think, if you go beyond this questioning in terms of state or society, the Mutars actually always try to figure as, you know, the defendants of the people when they are in contact with the people. So for the residents and for the citizens, Mutars do produce an image, the image of having a recourse when you have to do something with the state, of, of having a kind of amicable mm-hmm. Or to the state institution, some place where you can ask help to do some administrative procedure, help in terms of getting information, but also getting support and sometimes also getting some maybe privilege or privileged access or even bypassing some regulation if, if your situation is specific and so on. So they produce, because they are so amicable to the residents, they produce this image that Yes, the state in Turkey is often considered, you know, like a very ununderstandable, very far away, very sometimes dangerous. But Mutars are a part of the officialdom that is more human in a way, <laughs> is more accessible, is more is easier to work with. And so it, it's very important in the relation of, of people, I think, to the state, because Mutars are one of the interfaces between people and the state. Only one of them, you know, there are the schools, other administrations, but Mutars are very important in the everyday life of, of, of most Turkish citizens, not so much for educated groups or for well-off groups, but for not so well-educated people, Mutars are crucial. And I, that's actually what I wanted to bring here as a kind of addition or, or nuance to our broader conception of the Turkish state as a very strong and very autonomous from society, very much separated from society. Here, I saw some other kinds of dynamics. You also talk about how in recent years, Muhtars have actually become rather politicized, or rather the executive, the presidency, has really become much more involved with the work of Muhtars and has subjected them to greater oversight. And you talk about how, you know, the central authorities in Ankara have conducted various initiatives to basically bind Muhtars more firmly to it. So that, you say, has led to a, a decline in the Muhtarlik's autonomy in several ways. And of course, here we should mention President Erdogan's relationship with Muhtars, because uh, if we remember just a few years ago, he was holding this series of meetings with Muhtars at the presidential palace where he'd basically bring in a group of Muhtars from across the country, invite them in to the presidential palace, give them a rousing speech and then kind of send them away. So you talk about how there the, the plan for that initiative was basically to receive every one of Turkey's 50,000 Muhtars across the country at least once every five years. And then that initiative was quietly kind of dropped. And you talk about how only 20,000 Muhtars actually attended 
attended those meetings ultimately before they stopped in late 2018. But this was a really visible and extensive initiative, and it really thrust the Muhtars into the spotlight, and it got a lot of comment at the time about what was going on. So could you just talk about that initiative under the light of this broader question of Muhtars becoming perhaps politicised, or at least the executive exerting more influence over their work? You know, how and why did that happen, and what were the effects? Yeah, that's uh, in the recent years, it's a very important development. And I also, I have to say that helped me a lot because I had begun my research before Erdogan got interested in Mukhtars. He did began, begin these meetings in 2014 after becoming president. But I had begun my research a few years earlier and, and many of my colleagues were just wondering why I was interested in Mukhtars because they were considered so unimportant. And Well, many people didn't understand my interest in Muhtars. And then when Erdogan got interested himself in Muhtars, then my colleagues stopped asking me why I was interested in Muhtars. And then, you know, they were wondering if if Erdogan read my books or so on. But um, I think he had a kind of other interest in Muhtars. So basically, this politicization of Muhtars, actually, there is this Muhtar policy by Erdogan. I will come to that a bit later. But there is a broad an earlier development that is also influential in this politicization of Muhtars is the, I think there has been a politicization of local issues, which is multidimensional, but is related to the urban transformation projects that have been implemented after, let's say, the uh, mid-2000s in many neighborhoods, especially in Istanbul, not only in Istanbul, but that has increased a lot the stakes of local politics. So basically there was this politicization of local issues is is also linked to that broader phenomenon. And then what happened in in that context, municipalities also tried to get more influential on Muhtars. Actually, there is no hierarchical link between municipalities and Muhtars officially. But because the stakes of local and municipal politics were increasing, municipalities also began to get closer to Muhtars and try to bind the Muhtars to them, to themselves, sorry. So that happened in, in very different ways, but that was before Erdogan began with his Muhtar policy. And so, as you said, these meetings were very spectacular in a way because it had never been seen that Muhtars have been received or by the president or by any big politician or important official. So it was very new. It was a very new image that we got. And there was a very big communication strategy of these Muhtar meetings because they were broadcast on TV and also they were also uh, commented a lot in the pro-governmental media and also on the website of the presidency. There are all the speeches and so on. They're very big and it has been used. I think these uh, Muhtars have been used as a symbol of the people, of the people and actually Erdogan gathered them, uh, this image of, Muhtar, of Erdogan speaking to the Muhtars as speaking with normal people, elected people people as if he was speaking to the country. And if you look at what he said, actually, in those speeches, it's very interesting because he doesn't speak about 
Mukhtar issues, not a lot. At the beginning, in the two or three first you know, meetings, he speaks about Mukhtar issues or issues related to the Mukhtars or problems of the Mukhtars and so on. But this is only the beginning. Most of the time, he speaks about general policy, including most of the time about issues that are not really of interest to most Mukhtars. In many of the meetings, he spoke about, you know, foreign policy, diplomacy, whatever, Syria, etc. So it's and and here you see how this uh, is a way actually of of Erdogan to speak about his general or policy orientations in a setting where he seems to speak to the people and he's broadcast all over the country as being, you know, uh, very close to the people. So I think this is a symbolic dimension of this Mukhtar policy. And this has been important in terms of, you know, Mukhtars who have been invited, which is, as you said, about 20, 25,000 Mukhtars, but it's almost half of the Mukhtars, which is huge, actually, even if the plan was bigger at the beginning, it still is. It's quite huge. It's quite a, a big achievement. And, and Mukhtars, I have spoken with some who have been attending these meetings. They were so proud. They felt so esteemed. And yes, they were proud um, and they were very impressed. Erdogan also asked them actually to spread his words to their residents and all over, you know, the country. So as a channel of spreading the voice of the president. But that's only one part of what Erdogan did with the Mukhtars. That's the visible part. What actually he did also in those years, in the mid-2010s, is he increased a lot their allowance. Their allowance in, in a few years was like two or threefold. And also there were many, you know, like material advantages of Mutars that also were increased, like, you know, social security and things like that. So their material conditions were better. And also their work has been valued also because Erdogan always said that, you know, like municipalities have to help Mutars and so on and to help them doing their job, like giving some premises or, or giving them computers and things like that. So it is a, a, a broader, like making their status better and situation better and also valuing them. This is very important also because all of this was also linked, I think, to the idea of binding the Muftars more to state rationales and less to society issues, like making them feel more, you know, linked to the president and to the state and not only state, I mean executive and less, you know, to the people like they are less, for example, dependent now on, on the, their residents for the money because they, now they earn more money from the state than from their residents, which has not always been the, the case. So I think that's important. But also in order to understand what that means, it's important to keep in mind that even with this policy that seems to be coherent, is actually coherent, Mortars didn't get more power. They didn't get more decisional powers. They didn't get a budget. So they kept with the same role, but with more value, in, uh, so to say. That was Elise Massicard. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 179. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Tourism Bloomsbury. 
transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, once again, let me remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality, original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.